Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to It's Lit, where all things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots Editor-in-Chief, here with the Managing Editor of The Glow Up, Maisha Kai. And today, our guest is Morgan Jerkins, Senior Editor at Zora, and author of the New York Times bestseller, This Will Be My Undoing, Living at the Intersection of Black, Female, and Feminists in White America. Morgan's latest book, Wandering in Strange Lands, which just came out in August, chronicles her journey to uncover her roots by following the footsteps of the Great Migration. So, Maisha, the Great Migration is something that impacts almost everyone that I grew up with because my family was part of that Great Migration, as yours was as well. That's right. Yeah, we're Midwestern girls, you and I. And, you know, I know my great grandparents, who I had the pleasure of knowing, came from Mississippi. And, you know, that's a very common migration route to Chicago, which is where I live now. So those routes are really clear. And, you know, what I love about what Morgan's done here is she's also shown a huge amount of versatility from her first book, which was more essays, personal essays. And this is, while it's still deeply personal, uh, something that I think is really universal. So, you know, it, it was a good read. Yeah, I think it definitely relates to the diasporic spirit, like the fact that the diaspora is not just something that exists internationally, but also something intranationally within our own borders of Black people moving from different parts of the country to escape Jim Crow and segregation. In the case of my family, my father came from Texas, my mother came from Arkansas and moved to St. Louis, Missouri in the 1970s, which was a, had a profound effect on my life growing up in the very segregated North. But it's just, it's, it's fascinating to see her kind of uncover these stories of who we are and how we became to be who we are in this country. And I love what you really pointed to there about us having kind of our own domestic diaspora. And I, I can't wait for Morgan to expound on that more. So, you know, let's, let's get into it. You know, since It's Lit, it's all about books. We like to start off with a nice, you know, fun icebreaker question. Um, And so what we want to know is what book that you've read was the most life-changing for you? Oh, my God. That's a hard one. Um, I would either say, I would say The Blue Aside by Toni Morrison or Sing Unburied Sing by Jasmine Ward. Ah. Excellent choices. Now, the blue side was a, was a, was a game changer for me too. I know. It's like a kind of no brainer. Like, I feel like when you ask these questions, you gotta be like, Tony Morris is off limits. Don't say Tony Morris <laughs> and chose somebody else. I was like, all right. <laughs> I mean, if it makes you feel any better, I would have said Sula. So there you go. <laughs> I know, but Sula's life changing the way I thought about friendships though. So it's like yes. different categories where you are in your life. Change the game. Yeah. I remember when I read Sula. 
when I first read it, I it made me angry because I hated how terrible of a friend. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Was. yeah. But now that I look back on it now as an adult and see how my relationships have unfolded, now I get it. But also the way she wrote about sex. I've never mm-hmm. seen someone write about sex in that way. Like I feel like you can write a you can do a master class off the way in which she describes sex in that book only. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. Precisely. Maisha, do you have a game-changing book? Um, I mean, that would definitely be one. Um, oh, gee, there's so many game-changing books for me. Gosh, you know, and I, I'm, I, yeah, I'm gonna have to go with some classics. I, yeah, for Color Girls was major for me because I'm, you know, I'm also a musician and a theater person, and I think that was a that was a piece that centered black women in theater in a way that I'd never seen before. And even though, you know, now it's part of the canon. I was first introduced to it when I was like a preteen. And so uh, at that sp- at that age, I didn't know that there was something for me there. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mine was probably a combination of uh, the autobiography of an ex-colored man by James oh. Walton Johnson and uh, Invisible Man. Mm-hmm. I still like quote Invisible Man like all the time. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> but awesome but you know those are all classic books that are all amazing everyone should definitely read them get into them experience that but we want to talk about your new book okay wandering in strange lands which is very different from your first book of essays this will be my undoing and required tremendous historical research on not unlike a thesis uh how did you undertake that process Man, well, I will just start by saying the inspiration for my book actually came from an unlikely source. It came from Get Out. When I was watching it, the climactic scene where Daniel Kaluuya's character has his hand wrapped around Allison Williams' throat and the police pull up. And I was sitting in Magic Johnson Theater in Harlem and everybody just collectively gasped. And I thought it was astounding for me because I said, oh, okay, we're not all native Harlemites. I'm not. But we still had this instinctual response. And at first I wanted to write about intergenerational trauma, intergenerational fear, which is something that I, you know, I explored a bit in my first book. And I had these conversations about it as I was promoting my first book. But then when I spoke to two scholars, two black women scholars, Carrie Greenidge and Kendra Field, who both were based in Boston, they told me, oh, I think you're writing a migratory story. And I was like, hmm, okay. And then it was just a matter of, okay, if I'm trying to unpack this and figure out the unifying and yet distinct forces of Black American lives, where do I even start? And it took me through learning about the food pathways, everything from our superstition, our folklore, even to the way in which we identify ourselves underneath the umbrella of Black American that really took me to very interesting places. So first it was the preliminary research where I spent time at the Schaumburg researching about these communities before I spoke to people from said communities. And I wanted them to have familiarity with me and the work that I was doing prior to me traveling there. Then when I traveled there, I interviewed them, took pictures, captured videos, and I had a freelance transcriptionist help me in order to expedite the work. But that's the way I did it in different layers. Well, you know, and it's interesting because, you know, just for our readers, people who are going to read your book, you know, this journey that starts with tracing your own roots. I mean, it takes you from your native New Jersey through, you know, you're going south, right, down the eastern seaboard, you know, you're, you're going through the low country of Georgia, South Carolina, Louisiana, Oklahoma, and ultimately you end up 
in Los Angeles, California. So yeah, in the, it is a very migratory story in the truest sense. And I guess I would love to know a little more about why you felt also, in addition to it being your own story, how you felt it was essential to understanding the Black experience in America, that particular path. I've always been curious about Black people. And one of the things that, you know, I actually take it as a compliment when readers and professionals like yourself are like, yeah, this is different from your first book. And I wanted it to be, in a sense, because the way that I was able to gain a foothold in the industry was by writing personal essays, by doing hot takes. There was no other way for me to make my way in there. And I can say the same for many other young women, particularly women of color. And I wanted to be given the opportunity to try, to endeavor, to not have these resolute conclusions, but to come up with potential realities for what might have been happening to our ancestors and for the descendants of those who are enslaved. And so for me, like a man, I will just say that I've always been a curious person. I, I was a part of a family that definitely divided up. Maybe I was the last generation that separated grown folks conversation from children's conversation. You got to step out the room. I don't know if it's like that anymore with Gen Zers, but because these conversations were so stratified in our intimate spaces, it really got me think of, well, well, what exactly lost when we don't pass down things, even if we don't pass down things because we're traumatized or other, other things. And so with this book, it was, it was trying, I was trying to document a mosaic of black American experiences and how those experiences can transform, can fracture and rupture depending on migration, as you said, depending on land displacement and depending on laws and statues of the time. And that was something that was very interesting for me is that when we speak about the black American experience or black American identity, I realized that there are black American identities and experiences. And it's so great to not only talk about things that unify us, but within that unity, talk about what distinguishes us depending on which region we're from. And I really wanted to be able to highlight that in the book. Well, it's interesting that you brought that up because it leads really nicely into our next question, which is about how being a Black woman, you know, moving through Black spaces among other Black people, you do write about this constant awareness of your otherness. Would you say that this feeling parallels most Black Americans' relationship with our continent of origin? I'm not sure. The reason why I say that is because I resigned myself to the fact that I might never know which countries my ancestors originated from, their ethnic groups, their languages, because of the transatlantic slave trade and because a lot of DNA corporations are now capitalist corporations. So I don't really know what everything will be definitive. But it's one thing to feel that loss from a country across the Atlantic and to feel that loss on American soil where you know your family has been here for several generations and you know deep down inside you just have this hope within that curiosity that you can recover something. It may not be everything, but you have to be able to recover something. And so for me, it's hard to make that analogy because of the distance. It's, a, it's literally an ocean between us. But it's another thing to be right here in on this land and to feel foreign at the same time. And so that's why when I ventured into these communities, I had to make sure, like, listen, just because we black doesn't mean I know you. And I'm not meaning that antagonistically, but what I'm saying is, is that to not assume that I can just paint any black American community with a huge swath just because I grew up in a black American community in New Jersey, in South New Jersey, and it's very specific. So 
throughout the book, I want people to understand that I had to unlearn a whole lot about what I thought I knew about Black American history. And a lot of times it was very uncomfortable, but I still had to do the work regardless or else the narrative would have never crystallized. No, that's really amazing. I mean, it makes me think on my own experiences um, because I've moved around a lot. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. My mom's from Arkansas. My dad's from Texas. Uh, I've lived in Texas. I've lived in California, lived in Washington, D.C. And the Black experience is different in each and every one of those places. It has its own cultures, languages. (laughs) And that's fascinating. When you say that you had to be uncomfortable, like what were some of the uncomfortable things that you had to unpack in this relearning? So I love saying this part. I've I've reiterated in other interviews, but like, you know, I'm a product of the public school system. And the way that I was taught was in terms of black history was... You know, your ancestors were captured from or near the west coast of the African continent. They were brought over um, the Atlantic Ocean because of the transatlantic slave trade, slavery, emancipation, reconstruction, Harlem Renaissance, civil rights, and then Obama. I was never taught that there were free people of color or free black people that existed prior to Lincoln. I was never taught that there were black slave owners, like thousands of them. And they weren't just in the South. There were thousands of them who participated in the plantation economy. Now, granted, some of them owned their family members, bought their family members with the, with the intent to manumit or free them, but they still participated in it. And that part made me uncomfortable because the way that I was raised was because of the racial binary of the United States, whites and black are polar opposites of each other in terms of phenotype, in terms of our access to financial, cultural, and social power. But if you find in history that that wasn't always the case, that black people participate in the plantation economy and slave owners, that doesn't mean their power was equal to white people, but they still were participating in that, in that exchanging of human capital, then does that complicate our notion of blackness then? And if so, how? Does that complicate our notion of who we are as a people? And if so, how? And I think those were the parts that were uncomfortable for me to see that two people, two different groups were not always diametrically opposed to each other, like on one side of the spectrum and to the next during slavery. That was very uncomfortable. And it was even more uncomfortable for me to even write it because like I'm on Twitter. And I'm a writer and I know what it's like firsthand and from other people I know who write where people will take screenshots of your work and mangle it and maim it to make a straw man argument or to just basically humiliate. They're not trying to have a conversation. And I was afraid of that. But I had to tell myself, I can't shame the people who opened up their lives and their hearts to tell me their stories. I can't shame my publisher. This is the work right here is to talk about the truths that make us uncomfortable. And then also think about, I want to be a mother someday. What, what am I doing to my future children if I try to obfuscate certain parts of black American history because it doesn't sit well. That's going to make it that much harder for them to uncover stuff about their own people. And I don't want to be a person that replicates that. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, you spoke about this kind of binary thing wow. that <laughs> happens in America. And this was one of the questions that we had for you. You know, 
You talk about the racial binary, and I think that it seems that in Wandering in Strange Lands, one of the things you're trying to do is kind of dismantle this sense that, you know, we're just black and white in America. I mean, obviously we know there's people of other races here, but when it comes to black and white people, you are really plumbing the depths more. You know, you're, you're dealing with your Creole heritage, you're exploring your potential indigenous roots. Why did you feel that those explorations were not just necessary for you, but intrinsic to understanding the totality of the Black American experience? Because I found out that oftentimes Black oral histories or Black oral storytelling often collides with documented histories. And I have found often that when it comes to documentation, we don't always have it. Because oftentimes it was not in our power to have it during slavery. Reading and writing was a death sentence, so to speak. And so oftentimes documentation is in the hands of white people with access to said institutions. And oftentimes oral history is devalued. It's seen as a folklore, it's seen as a pejorative or something that is just spiritual but has no weight. And I think that I owe so much to Zora Neale Hurston, for example, who was one of the first who who made sure to merge the folklore with the documentation to show that this is this is Black American life, this is Black American Southern living, and it is just as veritable as what you read in the textbooks at Columbia University. So for me, it's like I wanted to plunge into the depths of the totality of those experiences, as you say, to show that, well, what happens when family members exchange this information but you can't find any of it in the books you know how does that make one feel on not just an intellectual level but an emotional level and so that's why in many different parts of the book when I'm talking about the the, the links between blackness and indigeneity or black and white people their relations with each other and you know their dealings with the plantation economy is to just show that our ancestors cannot be flattened you know, we say in internet space, I'm not my ancestors. And we often say it with regards to like, we're stronger than them, which I completely, I reject that for many different reasons. But what I think when we say I am not my ancestors, you're right. Because you can't flatten your ancestors and what they did to survive, whether you like it or not. And so that is something that I really want to bring up is like, if we're going to expose the totality and the multiplicity of black american experiences we have to be okay wherever it may lead because what we want to show is that in spite of the oppression in spite of the disenfranchisement these people still made decisions to exert their autonomy to exert their freedom within all of this brutality that was happening and i think that it was important to elucidate that as best that i could You said something about plunging into the depths and, you know, water is a huge motif in this book. It's a really powerful one, actually. And, you know, you contextualize this for black Americans through, you know, a widespread fear of water. Um, You know, there's a, a, a widespread inability to swim. There's access issues to water that we see persist to this day. And, you know, very much so in the genetic imprint, obviously, of the Middle Passage from Africa. And as I was reading it, I'm thinking of things like Hurricane Katrina. You know, I'm a Chicagoan, so I'm thinking of how, like, the Chicago race riots started blocks away from where I live now in 1919 with a black teenager drifting over into the white section of Lake Michigan, right? And you write... We are mindful that the water is treacherous. It is roiled by forces of white supremacy and intergenerational disconnect. How did that pattern emerge for you? And why was it so significant? Like, why, why do you, why was this a through line for you in this book? Well, for me, it's like water, it feels so much contradiction in my life. Like, you know, I think about with regards to death, 
My mother almost suffered a fatal accident from drowning. I almost suffered one. My mother grew up on a barrier island or the Jersey Shore, never learned how to swim. Her siblings didn't learn how to swim. So many people I know did not know how to swim. And we would often make jokes about it with regards to drowning, with regards to our hair, because chlorine isn't kind of kinky, coily hair. But I said, there has to be something deeper there. And when I spoke to my mother about that, I said, how did you grow up on a barrier island and you didn't even learn how to swim? She was like, I guess my family was afraid that we would be taken from them. And I said, taken? I was like, that's a really interesting phrase because if, if someone knows how to swim, you would assume they'd be able to come back to shore. But then when I did some research, I realized that even on the African continent... When slavery started to really pop off, for lack of a better phrase, you know, people would not have their children near the water because they feared that they would be taken away. And when I think about the African-American experience, I mean, even with the transatlantic slave trade, there are historians who believe that the Atlantic Ocean is a floating graveyard for enslaved Africans because of those who were tossed overboard due to disease and malnutrition and also do drown. But even in America, everything from the segregated pool systems in the north when people, black people migrated in droves, from the lead contamination down in the sea islands where the Gullah Geechee people used to be one with the land and the water. And you look at the lead contamination in Newark, New Jersey, Flint, Michigan, other black neighborhoods. I mean, and then you think about our cultural, well, if you're Christian, for example, take me to the water when you're being baptized. You think about the River Jordan and Negro spirituals where, where you know, enslaved black people will cross the Ohio River into free territory. Water encapsulates the gamut for us. It can encapsulate freedom, transformation, also a road to heaven because a lot of Gullah Geechee people, they would bury their, their people in cemeteries facing the water because they believed that their souls would go back to Africa in the afterlife. So it constitutes that, but then it also constitutes death, destruction, disappearance, devastation. And so I'm so thankful that when I speak to interviewers like yourself, that you wanted to magnify that motif because I even, when I started writing that, like you said, there's so many ways you can talk about it. There's so many different, you talk about the Mississippi flood, you can talk about Hurricane Katrina, you can talk about so many things and that, and it's so precious to me and I know how delicate of a subject it is and I was telling myself throughout each and every draft, you better, you better bring it girl, you better really bring it because this is so, it's so heavy. And I wanted to make sure that I just did justice and to make sure that I talk about the different elements to show the distinctions where you move and, and the different locations, but to also talk about the ways in which our relationship with water has just been ruptured in many different ways. So moving from water, actually, I want to talk a bit about the themes around land or earth that exist in your book. Um, it's a, just another prevalent theme throughout, uh, particularly around ownership about which you make some striking revelations. As the discussion around reparations has grown in the past several years, do you feel land rights are still a crucial part of that conversation for Black Americans as they have been for Native Americans? Oh, yes. I mean, y'all gonna make me shake the table on this one. But, you, but I mean, for, for example, like the other day I heard that Creek land in Oklahoma was being you know, they was going back to the creeks, which it should be originally gone back to. And when I read it, I was so happy because I said that was their land. When former President Andrew Jackson forced the five civilized tribes, was the Cherokee, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Creek, and Seminoles, west of the Mississippi, into Indian Territory, which is now known as Oklahoma. What I didn't realize during the Trail of Tears, what that's called, black people accompanied on that. 
they were either enslaved by them or they were parts of the tribe as free people or fugitives. And so for me, when I think about reparations, for example, we can, we have to talk about the massive land loss or land theft of, you know, with regards to black people and ownership. You know, I think about, for example, Black Wall Street. Black Wall Street became what it became was not only because of black Southerners migrating into the territory because during, you know, the early mid 20th century, Oklahoma was seen as the place for black people to be. You know, because of the land, but it was also because of Creek freedmen, black and indigenous people who were given land allotments by the United States Dawes commissions and then the treaties with the tribes. They had these land allotments already. So it was already fertile ground to create Black Wall Street. It was the Creek Freedmen and it was the Black American migrants that came into the territory. When I think about Hilton Head, for example, Buford County, the millions and millions of acres that Black people have lost in that county alone. And when you talk to people who vacation there, like I didn't know this, well, obviously then because they've been displaced. You know what I mean? It's this, it's the continual land displacement. And that's why I tell people, pay attention to your favorite vacation resorts, the favorite golf courses. You have no idea the bones that are beneath that. And I mean that figuratively and I mean that literally. So when we speak about reparations, it's not just a matter of, you know, giving money to communities. What about the land that still should be ours? You know, I even heard stories when I was in Oklahoma and I'll end with this because I can go on a long time, but I even heard stories when I was in Oklahoma when black people, black and indigenous people got their land allotment. Some of them would leave their lands when they found out oil was underneath it. And, by, and you know, oil means a lot of money. They would leave it because they were afraid of what would have happened to them if they would have stayed on it. My goodness. That's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, no, it really resonated with me because one of the stories from my family, especially on my mother's side, involved land that was basically stolen from them, that was swindled out of the family. Because, you know, people just wanted it. Like, right. Know, it's not like you had a choice. Because there was what no I'm protections saying. for you under the law. But that's what I'm saying. Like, when you think about heirs property, how you're not protected there. I just, I literally just had an interview with a local reporter in Hilton Head. After I wrote a New York Times excerpt from my book about Hilton Head and what's going with the land loss there. She said, well, what's happening is, is that you have these heirs property where there's the link with taxes. And after a year, anyone can bid on them. And she's like, what do we, what do you think we should do about that? And I said, well, look at the wealth gap in Hilton Head alone. More black people are impoverished than, than, than white people in that town. And not only that, look at the taxes. They keep increasing. I've spoken to a black real estate agent who is from there. $17,000 it could be in one year. Who could pay for that? So if you're talking about, oh, well, they're not paying their taxes, look how much they're being paid. Look at their median salary for black people, not Hilton Head as a whole. And look at the taxes. Are you setting these people up to fail? to uproot them so it's 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 heartbreaking when i hear stories like yours where it's like oh i'm so oh it was stolen it was swindled because a lot of times people want to be like where's your proof where's your documentation as if stuff hasn't been forged or fiddled around with before you know what i mean so it's it's crazy um, you know, obviously Hilton Head's a haven, right, for white tourism. And, you know, I I wonder sometimes if we, as black people, if we also are in danger of romanticizing our Native American histories or blood or, or Creole blood, especially as it relates to colorism. You know, one of the things that you spoke about earlier was the assumptions that you made about what it means to be black and about blackness, which also related to color. And you wrote, I wanted to be part of the burden of being black. 
which I thought was like, I was like, wow, you know, and then you instantly question yourself and you say, but then again, was I binding blackness and oppression together? How do you hope that addressing these kind of assumptions will further inform what I hope is our kind of growing awareness of how color privilege functions on how color functions in general in our communities and the racial caste system as we are beginning to identify it? Right. So the hard thing, that's a great question. So it's weird hearing somebody speak it. And like when I say I want to be a part of the burden, it's just because like to hear that your people were free people of color and they also were slave owners and stuff, it's just like, yuck. Like it's just, it just it, for lack of a better term, it's like, ew. Like I don't want that. I don't want that luxury. I don't want that wealth attached to my name, but it's in my blood regardless. When I think about Creole people, it's like, while I was taught, they were light-skinned, uppity black people that didn't want to be black. They want to be French, Spanish, indigenous, and then maybe black before razzle-dazzle. It was not, it, it was just, that's what I was taught. And, you know, what's interesting is that we have these conversations about Creoleness, especially because of Beyonce, for example, which is, which has definitely aroused a lot of intense emotions. But what I want to tell people is that Creole was a distinct group prior to Louisiana even becoming a part of America. I have cousins of mine, distant cousins, <laughs> no shade, who don't identify as African-American at all. They just identify as Creole because they think that because their culture and their way of life preceded the American racial binary system, the either or. And that's what this binary is. It's either or. But when you go to Oklahoma to deal with black and indigenous people, when you go to Louisiana and you talk to Creole people, it's both ends. And that's not something that I think that a lot of black people, when we have these discussions and mainstream discourse, have been afforded. The both ends whether it's regards to our ethnic identities or whether it's just regards to our experiences. For me to be able to say, yes, I'm a descendant of enslaved black people. I'm also a descendant of free people of color. I'm also a descendant of, of people, free people of color who were slave owners. That's not to, you know, prop myself up. It's just the truth, even if it's uncomfortable. I think when we talk about color and phenotype, for example, what it means to be black by just looking at you. It was hard because I'm always looking at, you know, when I'm from Jersey, I could tell when somebody's black. I look at a hairline. Look at the nose, even the jaw. I'm like, oh, that person, that's Ken. When you go down to certain areas of Louisiana, though, you're like, hmm. You know, you, you gotta, you, you pause a bit. And I speak about those interactions where it's like, it's not always that. And these people are telling you they're, they're black. Even when Jim Crow happened, forced them into these either or, they were like, I am black. And how do we make room for those people while talking about color privilege, while talking about, you know, colorism? But then talking about the people who they had nothing to do with their phenotype. You know what I'm saying? How do we how do we account for those histories? So, Morgan, you know, you couldn't have known when you began writing Wandering in Strange Lands that it would be in the midst of such a major resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement. And that by the time it was published on August 4th, that, you know, this movement would be you know, this protest movement has been going on for months now. And and in that way, parts of the book feel predecessor. Uh, now that we're once again in the midst of that conflict, you believe, as many others do, that somehow things are different this time. Yeah. I mean, self-promotion is hard to begin with. Um, when you promote the book, like, please buy my book. Even though I wrote the damn thing, like, you know, I got to sell it. But, you know, the pandemic, the lockdown... And then the protests. And it's interesting because 
when I was in LA for the last part of my field research, I was with an underground rapper and we were at the intersection of Florence and Normandy, which is where the Rodney King ride started. And I asked him, I said, do you think it's going to happen again? When he said, he basically said, I'm going to paraphrase that if we don't reckon with what this country has done to black people, it will happen again. And literally two years after he said that, that's when the George Floyd protest happened. And for me, it's sad because it's just like, I'm tired of us having to go to the streets for this again and again. Now, it was inspiring seeing everyone from Omaha, Nebraska people, all the way to New Zealand marching for people like us to exist. That was inspiring for me. But what I think is pressing about this book coming out this time is just the cyclical nature of stuff going on. What I mean by that is with regards to this book, and I hope people understand this, is that every time Black people have tried to exert their autonomy through movement, and much of African-American lives comprise movement, whether forced or voluntary, there has been a white backlash to curtail that movement, whether it's redlining um, and spatial segregation, whether it's land displacement, whether it's outright state violence. There has been all of these measures, coast to coast, region to region, to curtail our movement. And then what happens? We fight back. And that's why, in, you know, with the Los Angeles the 1965 rise, people were tired of moving around all the time. And they thought that they were going to find paradise. And they found the same problems greeting them in a different area code. And that's why the, the black rage happened. That's why we see the black rage happening in 2020 you know, 55 years later from the 1965 rise. So I think what I'm thankful for, because I thought this book was going to come out another time, even, you know, my book was actually pushed back. You know, I thought my book was going to come out in 2019, but I wasn't getting it right. Then I thought it was going to come out May of this year. Then it pushed back to August. And it made me realize I'm a firm believer in divine timing. And I hope that this book, for those who are interested in reading, will, will see that all these cycles that happen, that you're seeing right now is because white people have been trying to stifle our movement. And if we don't reckon with the devastation of what they have done to our communities, to our lives, when all the time we just want to be left alone, we're going to see this happen again and again and again. Wow. Thank you so much for that. I think, uh, I think you're dead on. And appreciate this book. Again, everybody, it is Wandering in Strange Lands by Morgan Jerkins. It is out now on uh, Harper Harcourt Mifflin. Thank you so much for coming to speak with us on It's Lit. Thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the words. Thank you. Great having you, Morgan. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. The Root Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. All right, if you like the show and you want to help us out, just give us a little rating on those Apple podcasts to let other people know how to find It's Lit. And, you know, spread the word, the literary word that we're giving to you every single podcast. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Now, to close thing out, uh, me and Maisha always talk about, you know, what we're reading right now. And I'm in the midst of reading a classic 
is called The Hero's Journey, also known as The Man with a Thousand Faces. I believe it's the title of the book. The Hero with a Thousand Faces. See, I I got the classics wrong. Whoops. Uh, It's Joseph Campbell's book about mythology and modern storytelling. And it's very fascinating. It's also probably the most complicated read I've undertaken since college. You know, sometimes we got to keep the mind sharp, you know, and I am digging into what I think is a modern classic. Isabel Wilkerson, her new book, Past, you know, so much of what, what's so great about Morgan's book is it's building on this tradition of, you know, authors like Alex Haley and Isabel Wilkerson, who, you know, first came to a lot of national attention with um, The Warmth of Other Suns, excuse me, which was about the Great Migration. So I'm very excited to be digging into Cast now, which is really going to kind of dissect our class issues in America. Awesome. So we want to know what you're reading at home. So please hit us up on Twitter. You can reach me at Black Snob on Twitter, or you can follow me on Instagram at Belton Danielle. Maisha, where can folks reach you? They can reach me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A or Maisha Kai, one word on Instagram. All righty. So that's it for us today. Thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back with more books and more talk about all the literary genius in the world. That's right. All the Black literary genius. So keep it lit, y'all. Keep it lit. (laughs) 